So when we talk about systems change work, it's not just about the big policy win, but it's about shifting the narrative, shifting the power, shifting the relationships. And it's about building the awareness that systems change isn't just the big end goal. All those steps along the way that are not not just a means to an end, that they are transformative in themselves. Tap into the minds of change makers creating real impact on people and our planet. It's time to live your purpose. I'm your host, Dale Wilkinson, and this is Good Makers. Hey, welcome to episode 10. If this is your first time listening, I'm so glad you found your way here. Make sure to subscribe. I have new episodes each week with change makers doing incredible things and who have practical tips on how you can do it too and start living a life of purpose. And if you're in the market for a new job, head over to goodgigs.app and join our community. We have hundreds of mission-driven companies who have available jobs in marketing, tech, content, and design. You can customize what type of jobs you're interested in and get alerts to new jobs each week in your inbox. On this episode, I speak with Christine Majotta. She's the executive director of Los Angeles' chapter of the global nonprofit Social Venture Partners. One of their popular programs is their Systems Change Accelerator, which helps nonprofits here in Los Angeles get off the ground and create systemic change on a range of social issues. In this episode, Christine describes what systems change is and why it's important for impact leaders to integrate it into their organization's strategy. She also discusses the commonalities between successful change makers that she has noticed after working closely with hundreds of these passionate professionals. And she gives her take on what you should contemplate when starting a mission-driven organization and working out whether a nonprofit or a for-profit legal structure is best for you. Let's jump into my conversation with the wonderful Christine Majotta. Christine, I'm so excited to have you on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to talk to you. I don't think I've ever said this to you, but every time I get to talk to you, I'm always so excited because you're such a warm person and you ultimately make me feel at peace. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm always, I always really enjoy our conversations. Oh, thank you. I do as well. And I'm, I'm really happy to reconnect with you and to know you. So you are the executive director of LA's chapter of Social Venture Partners. Are you able to give us a background in terms of what SVP is and the accelerator program that you have in place? Yeah, absolutely. Those Social Venture Partners is, as you mentioned, we are the LA chapter. We're actually an international network. We exist in over 35 communities around the world. Uh, And here in LA, our focus is is really on investing in transformative work that forwards racial and social justice here in Los Angeles. And we do that through the time, resources, energy, passion of a community of people that we call partners. Uh, mm-hmm. These are people who uh, give of themselves, give, give their time and resources to support and bolster these nonprofit initiatives. Awesome. Uh, so you mentioned our Systems Change Accelerator That is a program that we run out of SVP here in Los Angeles. And each year we support a cohort of really incredible 
early stage social justice initiatives working on a whole range of issues. Um, This year, it's everything from immigrant detention reform, criminal justice reform, homelessness and housing, uh, environmental justice, urban planning, uh, really, really runs the gamut. But our, our focus is on both supporting them through seed funding and through training and coaching supports that will help them as they're in the early stages of getting these initiatives off the ground. Can you explain what systems change is? Yes, I'll give it, I'll give it my best go. Um, <laughs> so, you know, when we think about what a system is, uh, we think about structures and people. Uh, so many people are familiar with the education system, right? That's one system that many, many people in our communities touch. And the system includes the schools, the school board, the policies, the students, the parents. It is made up of lots of people and structures and rules. And systems change, and particularly systems change that has its goal to create more more equity and more justice in the world, seeks to shift those systems uh, to make them more equitable uh, for everyone engaging in them. So that's everything from uh, shifting policy, uh, which is what many people think of when they think of systems change, the concrete policy change. But it's also about what are the narratives? What are the relationships? Where does the power sit in that system and making changes at those levels as well? So how do we support all these layers of a system in creating more equity in our communities, creating more justice uh, for communities and and groups of people that have been historically marginalized and and experienced oppression within these systems? So is it, it's more about looking at the root cause of some of these issues that we're facing? Right. Absolutely. Yeah. So we talk about, you know, in in any issue that we see out in the community, there is often an immediate need to alleviate the crisis, to provide Mm -hmm. direct services or crisis services to people who are suffering uh, in that moment. But always that suffering at its root is caused by the systems and structures that enable that, that suffering and those inequities to exist. Uh, mm. So while we acknowledge there's such a need for that direct service and that crisis intervention, our focus is really on the work that goes upstream and, and seeks to get to the root cause of the problem and, and asking why does this problem exist in the first place and how can we shift the structures and systems that enable this problem to, to exist and, and perpetuate. Was that something that was being done before SVP decided to focus the accelerator specifically on systems change? It's a really good question. So within the realm of philanthropy and, and those who are funding the work for change and funding nonprofits in the community, I'd say there, there is a balance of those that invest in systems change and those that, that invest in more of the direct service and, and crisis intervention where we saw a a gap that we could be supported in was in those early stages of of a new initiative when someone or a group of people have a big idea about how a system could function better Mm -hmm. whether it's making changes to an existing system or rebuilding the system from the ground up we felt really excited about deeply investing in people one who have lived experience of those systems. They themselves have navigated those systems and and have experienced uh, the inequities of those systems. 
and they have a vision for how these systems can function so much better. Uh, we felt really excited about being an early, an early funder, an early partner, an early uh, supporter of those efforts. And that's, we didn't see as much of that in the LA landscape as we would have liked to. And so we realized that's that's a space that SVP could be uniquely helpful, especially because our grants are relatively small. The funding, the funding we have uh, is not massive, but when you think about an early stage investment in something like a systems change initiative that has this big, bold vision, the opportunity for us to, to have impact is really great with that systems change focus. So that's, that's part of why we chose it. Awesome. With the accelerator program, staying on that for a minute, do you see commonalities between all the leaders of these particular organizations? Are there certain qualities that stand out? Oh, that's a great question. Yeah, absolutely. So I would say the first piece is that lived experience or deep proximity to, to the issues that they're working on. And with that, a deep passion for the change that they see and a commitment to that, knowing knowing that they'll be in it for the long haul. And I think a, a big vision for change and holding that big vision while also taking concrete steps in the current moment, knowing that that vision may be years off, maybe decades off, mm-hmm. but holding that long vision in mind while taking steps forward every single day and recognizing what those benchmarks might be along the way. And so the other thing that comes to mind when you say that is an exercise that we do with them uh, that we learned from Christine Ortiz at at Equity Meets Design, and it's called the problem with problems. And we have, uh, we ask each leader who goes through the accelerator in, in the early phases, they write a problem statement. What is the problem that they're solving for? And this, this exercise, this problem with problems exercise really encourages them to dig into the root of the root of the root cause that they're tackling to frame the problem absent its solution. Uh, so she talks about, you know, you've got to fall out of love with your solution and fall in love with the problem. Mm. And what's been so profound is as they write these problem statements across these very different issues, when we get down to the root, root, root cause their problem statements are so similar, right? They they dig they dig down to to the base issue, and and it's remarkable how how much we realize they all have in common and how we're all tackling some of the same big root problems. So much of that is grounded in our country's founding and in slavery yeah. and genocide capitalism, you know, those are the kinds of words that come out when we when we really dig underneath these problems. And so they look across the table at each other and they realize, man, I came here working on education reform, you're working on environmental justice, you're working on criminal justice reform, and yet we're all after the same thing. We're all tackling the same root problem. So that's been a really profound exercise and realization across these cohorts must also create like a really cool environment where they can support each other and lean on each other. Yeah, exactly. And that that's what we start to see happening early on in each of these cohorts is they're seeing, and not to say they didn't already see the intersectionality and in life experiences that exists across their issues, but they they very quickly go to that that deep level of interconnectedness as people 
and in looking at the issues that they're working on. And they are so for one another. They're so in it with each other and seeing one another's cause as their own cause. It's really beautiful to witness. What if you don't have lived experience of an issue that you're interested in pursuing and creating an organization around that? You're not part of the LGBTQ community, but you want to do something in that space or you're a white dude and you want to do something for women's rights. Where would you suggest that they start? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's such a good question because really in this work, we we need and want everyone. Um, So wherever your passion is, we want to create avenues to channel that passion into action. And I would say that the first step is really proximity and learning and listening about that issue, learning from people who do have the lived experience. And, you know, there, there's so many resources out there already to learn from folks, their books and blogs and films and art, you know, so many ways to learn from folks before directly asking them the question. But once, you know, once you've done your homework, then sitting down with folks and saying, how can someone without this lived experience be a a partner in this work? And that's, it's a lot of what I thought about uh, in stepping into this role at SVP and feeling really passionate about racial justice and social justice broadly. Uh, But particularly as it relates to racial justice, I uh, was in my previous role and had just accepted Uh, the job at SVP, and we had the November 2016 election uh, when Trump was elected. And, you know, I I had been working hard. I was working in homelessness, and I had been working hard on a measure, a housing bond that would bring billions of dollars uh, into Los Angeles uh, to help end homelessness. And that was was a big focus for me that night. And so we, we were at this big celebration party, knowing it was looking quite likely that we would win. And and we had the returns up in the front of the room. And slowly there started to be these whispers around the room about what was happening with the presidential election. Mm -hmm. And so we put up another screen in the back of the room uh, with the presidential returns. And it felt so symbolic to be pivoting back and forth throughout the course of the night um, and looking at the front of the room and looking at the great work uh, that was that was happening on homelessness and then looking in the back of the room. And it almost felt like looking, looking upstream yeah. and realizing, oh, we have a much bigger problem here. And I remember my, my wife calling me at some point in the evening and saying like, hey, I, I really need you to come home. I, I can't watch this alone. Will you please come, come back and, and be with me through this? And it was in that moment that I realized, you know, in the moments and days that followed, why I was stepping into this role. And as a white woman, what I could do around racial justice, which was to to spend some portion of, of my time and my work at SVP, yeah. focusing on deep and authentic conversations with people who weren't yet invested in social justice work and racial justice work and starting the anti-racism for white people course to really have those conversations and to grow the community of people that are committed to social justice. The anti-racism for white people program that you've been running since the beginning of the year, second year, I think it is. But my question was, where did that 
originate? And what was your thought process? And I think you just explained it, but was there any further deliberation that went into starting that program and to be the one that would lead it? Yeah. Yeah, it really goes into the the question you asked about what is our what is our role um, as individuals. And I realized what I do have lived experience of is is being a white woman that was indoctrinated into a white dominant and white supremacist culture in the US and has been on this journey, you know, I've been on this journey around social justice and around reckoning with with my own power and privilege and wanted to to share that and to do so from a from a space of both deep love and also deep conviction around racial justice. Yeah. And to create a space where white folks could have conversations and and grapple with all of this, always with the assumption that racial justice is at the center of our conversations and that's what we're all striving for together. Yep. But to give people the space to have those really real conversations and to to move forward in their in their own journeys with this. Yeah. So that's that's what I realized particularly after that election in grappling with what's my role in all this having worked in social justice work for a long time but realizing that I had never explicitly focused on whiteness and on my own whiteness and on Mm -hmm. building community and conversations with other white folks around our role in in justice. Yeah. I just want to say you're doing an incredible job. I'm enrolled in the the program, the anti-racism for white people program that happens virtually once a month. What is the plan for that? Because I've spoken to a a lot of other friends of mine who have all been interested in, but by the time it got around, we were already kind of a couple months into the program. Is there any plan to expand that in the future? Yeah, I've been so heartened by the response to the course. Uh, So we first started offering it January 2019 as a year long, as you mentioned, year long monthly engagement. We had 60 people sign up in the first year, which I was really excited by. Uh, and had a wonderful experience being with that group over the course of a year. And then when we offered it in 2020, we had 174 people sign up this year, uh, which has just blown my mind uh, in terms of how much people want to have this conversation. So rather than wait until January 2021, we're thinking about whether there's an opportunity mid-year to start another cohort. Um, There's certainly been, been interest in that. And we're in such a strange moment right now that, you know, we've we've wondered what the what the capacity of folks will be to keep having these conversations. But, you know, very much in this moment, these conversations are so relevant. So, yes. so yeah, we don't we don't plan to to end these conversations anytime soon. We, we want to keep going and keep creating more community for as long as yeah. people are interested in showing up. Good, because it's amazing. And the content and just what I've learned in, I think we're four months into it. It's such a nuanced issue that I'm beginning to realize. There's so many layers to uh, racial justice that I just, I'm learning. And I was talking about this with my partner, Scott, who you know, who is black. And, you know, he just said it outright. It's not his job to educate yeah. white people mm-hmm. about these racial issues, yeah, which just hits hits the nail on the head, and which is why this course is so great. Oh, I'm I'm so glad you're a part of it, and I'll just say, you're talking about you're learning. I will be learning for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. You know, I do things that are harmful um, in my life, and I learn from that. I learn from listening to um, amazing people around me. 
you know, I'm just, I am continuing to learn as well. And I, I learn from you all in the course, just from the ways you show up and dig into the dialogue. So I am grateful for that learning journey. And I heard similar sentiment to, to what Scott shared with you, you know, over the years when I would say, well, gosh, it's, it doesn't feel like my place to, to lead work around racial justice. Mm-hmm. And in this space, I feel it's our responsibility, um, certainly in, in talking to other white folks and not continuing to place that burden on the shoulders of folks of color to explain everything to us. Yeah, exactly. So much of that labor that's done every day in people's lives and every day to shoulder some of that ourselves, um, you know, and taking the learning upon ourselves, but also having those tough conversations with our friends and families. You talked about in 2016, really kind of being that moment of moving to SVP and focusing on social and racial justice. Tell us about the time when you realized that this was the career path that you wanted to take doing good. Where did, where did that begin? Oh, it's such a good question. And it's a hard one for me to answer because I don't, I don't think I ever thought any other path was an option. <laughs> I don't really know how to say that, but it, it felt like a given yeah. in my life. And I, I don't know where that comes from other than I, my older sister, who I looked up to so much and, and continue to look up to, she's five years older than I am and got her degree in social work and worked in the foster care system for a bit and is, has been a longtime teacher and just watched her path and both how she showed up in the world and, and the work that she did. And it just seemed like a given that mm. that, that was a, a similar path I wanted to take. And I'll say, you know, on, on the systems change front, my first job out of college I was working in a substance abuse treatment center for folks who were addicted to methamphetamine. And many of them were court ordered to come into our treatment center, which you can imagine how how wonderfully that goes when someone is uh, required to do anything uh, but to to receive a service like that. Mm -hmm. But what I realized quickly is that we were putting a Band-Aid on a symptom of much deeper systemic issues and quickly saw the, the impacts of economic injustice and domestic violence and, and so many other issues that were deep-seated in, in the community that I was working in. And this treatment program and certainly this the court-ordered elements of it were such a punitive approach to a symptom that we were all collectively ignoring. Mm. Um, and that the the substance abuse was a symptom of, of something deeper and more challenging going on uh, individually, but importantly, systemically, pause systemically. So that was an incredible experience for me to see firsthand back to this idea of defining the problem, that how we define the problem dictates what we do about it. And I quickly decided that I wanted to address a very different problem. And that was digging more into root causes. Uh, so after that time, all of my work was, was focused on systems change work in a variety of different settings. There was, there was no going back from there. Yeah. 
And you're not alone, Christine, with that question. I asked that to uh, everyone I've interviewed so far in the podcast, and everyone's stumped on that question. They they don't exactly know when or why they started to care. I think personally, that's just an innate with people that, you know, want to do good. Other people that aren't potentially working in this space are the ones that maybe went off on a different direction for mm-hmm. the multiple reasons we're conditioned to get a good paying job, that kind of stuff. But I'm hopeful that that's beginning to change. Yeah. And I appreciate the ways you're you're seeding those conversations about how it's possible to make change and do good in the world from so many different vantage points. It doesn't mm-hmm. have to be that you're working full time at a nonprofit to create change in the world. If there are people listening that are at a point that they want to create their own organization, whether that be a nonprofit or a uh, for-profit with impact ingrained into the business model, what's your advice on where to begin? Yeah. So I think about, you know, especially for founders and those who are in startup mode, that's a, that's a tough mode to be in. Um, and you know that as well as anyone. <laughs> uh, it's not an easy thing to get something up and nope. running. So this is probably obvious, but making sure it's something you're really passionate about. And when you think about doing the work day in and day out, it excites you, it fuels you, and you're okay to wear all the hats, right? Even I I stepped into SVP and it, it was already an established nonprofit. But when I started, there were two of us on staff and I had come from an organization of 100 people. Wow. And so I realized quickly oh, I, I am the finance department and the communications department and the fundraising and yeah. the programs. <laughs> you know, when, when you're a small shop, and especially when you're a founder, you're probably a team of one, you are wearing every single hat. So really loving the vision that you've created um, and every element of it. And, and I would also say for those doing uh, social change work, and I imagine this applies in the for-profit space as well, but that going back again to the, what's the problem you're solving for, right? Mm -hmm. Asking that question and really digging into it. So before, again, to borrow from Christine Ortiz, before you fully fall in love with your solution, really interrogating, what am I solving? And, And is this the best path? And related to that, you know, getting that deep proximity to, to the people who live that problem day in and day out, again, whether you're creating a, a product in the for-profit world or, or programs in the nonprofit space, yeah. you know, who's, whose problem are you solving? If, if not your own, or even if it is your own, how can you have lots of conversations and, and understanding of people who are living that day in and day out, learning from them and seeing what else exists out there, really mm-hmm. searching hard to find what wheel you are about to reinvent and, and making sure that you're not doing that. And if you are, Asking them and asking yourself the question of, is there an opportunity for partnership? What's, you know, is there a gap here that I can, that I can support filling? So, yeah, I think those are, those are some of the things I think about. And, um, you know, just on the personal side, thinking about your support network and who are the people that you're going to lean on in your life who can support you through this birthing process of bringing something new into the world your social support, your financial support, uh, all of it. 
Such a good point, the support. You have your friends and your family, which are obviously vital for so many reasons. When starting a company or a startup or you know an organization, I would also look for other people that are doing it because mm-hmm. <laughs> friends and family can only go so far when <laughs> starting something. Yeah. If you want to talk about, have someone to be able to bounce ideas off or just understand a little deeper about about what you're going through. Absolutely. Yeah, I've, I've watched my wife go through this process. She started an LLC mm. that is, it's a leadership development company called the Billions Institute. And she started it, gosh, it was right around when we had our son. So we had these dual babies within our lives. <laughs> but, you know, she talks about in an LLC structure, she doesn't have a board of directors. So in the nonprofit world, I have nine people whose job it is to support and advise and oversee the strategic direction of our organization. And, you know, I know for many nonprofit EDs, they struggle with the fact that they that they have a board. I feel super lucky that we have a, an incredible board at SVPLA. Yeah. Uh, but for Becky, she said, I don't have that built into this structure. So to your point, she'll say to me, you are you are my number one confidant and advisor and, you know, strategy partner. And and so she, she sometimes says, not that she wishes to have a board, but wonders about, you know, would it be helpful to have some kind of advisory board or a kind of kitchen cabinet of folks that she can lean on regularly and have those conversations with as much as we love talking about this stuff at home. I can, I'm only one person with one perspective. Exactly. Right. Yeah. You know, wherever you are, there would most likely be local entrepreneurial communities and groups that you can get involved with. And if there isn't, start your own mastermind. Right. Right. Yeah, absolutely. There are inevitably other founders who are looking for that camaraderie as well. Mm -hmm. Now, talking about if someone wanted to start a social change organization, but they were tossing up between a nonprofit or a for-profit, or they didn't really, they don't know which direction to go. Would you have any advice on what they should think about? Oh, yeah. I mean, this used to be such a, I used to see it as much more black and white than I do now, Um, especially because my wife and I are both running these organizations that have similar missions and visions in the world and just different structures, nonprofit versus LLC. So I, I will say you can certainly be mission driven in in the for-profit space, you know, and that's obvious, but I had not seen many examples of LLCs and for-profit companies doing the kind of work that she's doing. And I would say the, the primary distinctions are in our funding structures. I mean, certainly our, our tax status is one very concrete thing. Uh, but I think about, you know, as a nonprofit, I'm eligible to apply for grants from foundations and I can receive donations from individuals. Uh, her LLC is obviously not set up that way, mm-hmm. uh, but she can have contractual relationships with foundations where she's providing leadership development for their for the nonprofit organizations in their portfolios. So she can still have relationships with those funding entities. They're just, they're somewhat different. They're more contractual than versus a grant making relationship. Yeah. So that's one of the the primary distinctions I've seen is just how how each of our entities are structured. And again, the, the people component that I have a board of directors, uh, the oversight and, and accountability that happens on the nonprofit side. 
um, that often feels like one of the, the great ironies to me is just how how much oversight there is in the nonprofit world and how much scrutiny there is on nonprofits. Our missions are really to create good in the world versus some of the, the big companies out there that we see in this moment and in every moment creating great harm with very little scrutiny. So it is an irony. But um, that being said, I can't, I, I really love working in, in the nonprofit setting. But I, I would say to folks, as they're having those conversations with other people doing similar work, to ask that question as they're, as they're looking around the space that they'd be working in, talk to nonprofits, talk to for-profit companies, and assess the pros and cons of each approach. I mean, there yeah. are benefits and drawbacks to either structure, but it's been really eye-opening to me in the last few years just seeing how many LLCs are working in the social good space and how possible it is to have a, a thriving business in the for-profit space doing very similar work. Mm-hmm. That's right. The more people that are working on this, the better. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. It really it doesn't matter at the end of the day if, if we're all working towards a common vision of stronger and more equitable communities. We will need to come at it from every sector. We need, yep. you know, we need all of them, especially if we continue to operate in the systems in our country as they as they are now Um, these are the structures we've got let's we can work within them while we work to change them from the ground up is there something in the nonprofit space that is at the top of your list you wish you could change oh so many things Uh, (laughs) (laughs) top of the list (laughs) one well they they both probably feel like big lifts uh, to folks in the nonprofit sector but one i would say is about working conditions for nonprofit employees Mm -hmm. it is my dream that nonprofits pay a living wage and Mm -hmm. that that people who work within the nonprofit sector have strong benefits and can support their families and really thrive while also doing this work in community. And there's such a, a narrative that, you know, that people always say, well, you're not in it for the money. You know, you're in nonprofit. Yeah. Certainly that's true. Anyone who works in nonprofit is in it for the mission. And that shouldn't mean that that you sacrifice the the well-being and thriving of your family uh, in order to create the change. We have to to be super cliche, we have to live that change from within our organizations. We have to mm-hmm. both pay a living wage, but also create the policies and structures that enable people to thrive. You know, you and I were talking earlier about teleworking and how suddenly everyone's working from home and yeah. the work goes on. Everyone's okay. But yet that's, we do a workshop at SVP called Liberatory Workplaces. And I ask folks to anonymously on, on post-it notes, write up one oppressive policy in a, in a current or past workplace and one liberatory practice or policy in a current or past workplace. And inevitably, top of the list, it is about teleworking, you know, flexible hours, flexible yeah. locations, dress code. You know, there, there are all these things that don't have to be the way they are. And it, and it does often include salary and benefits, but it's not it's not at the top. And part of that, I think, is because we're conditioned to think that it's bad to want that, that we're wrong to want that. 
but mm. it is all of that. So, so that's one. Uh, one of my big wishes for the nonprofit sector is that we truly live our values of economic and racial and social justice from the inside out within our organizations, that we model that change, that we create that change. And that's hard when we're small and scrappy and we just want more people on the team to do the work. Yeah. But then how would you tackle the uh, narrative that if you want to work at a nonprofit, you shouldn't be in it for the money? It's a bigger conversation, right? How do you then address the individual donors, the big donors mm -hmm. that are what you mentioned before, scrutinizing nonprofits a lot more? Yeah. Any ideas? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that is that is the big question, and we were we were just having this conversation yesterday with Sonia Passi of of Free From, who I know you've you've had on this podcast mm. as well, yep. um, and and she you know works in the space of survivor wealth building, and and we invited her in. She's an an alumni of our accelerator, and we invited her in to talk to the current cohort about building wealth within social justice work. And she talked about, and I think this is brilliant, she talked about sharing with donors the living wage calculator out of MIT. Yeah. There is a calculator that says what a living wage is in any community. And she had even created uh, budget mock-ups for different family compositions of what does it cost to live in Los Angeles as a single parent with two kids, as an individual with student debt, you know, just these different scenarios that so many people are in and really asking folks to pause and think about that. And I, I see that as a big part of our responsibility at Social Venture Partners, that we we really have this two-pronged mission. And one prong of that is, is so much of what I've been talking about is supporting the social justice work. The other prong is about supporting philanthropists in, in being in engaged and justice-minded philanthropists. So a big part of our focus is on having those tough conversations with individual donors who make up our partnership, our membership base, mm -hmm. and saying, you know, I, I understand that it sounds great when a nonprofit says that 100% of their revenue goes directly back to the community, but what does that mean for their staff? Yeah, right? That means either... You as the founder have the privilege to not take a paycheck. Um, you have some other source of, of wealth where, where you're not requiring a paycheck or you're taking a very small salary and, and paying your staff a very small salary in, in order to say that and do that in your work. Yeah. Um, it just doesn't have to be that way. Yeah. I think you hit the nail on the head, right? It's again about as a leader, taking ownership and integrating that into your organization and educate, educate the donors. Because, you know, if the donors really care about the issue that you're working on, it's not that big of a leap to say, you know, we want the best people yep. working on this issue. Right. Exactly. There's you know, particularly if, if those donors are funding in the space of social justice, economic mm -hmm. justice, mm -hmm. We are not exempt from that right. As, right. as nonprofit organization. So I think as much of us who are executive directors and CEOs can really take a stand on that and talk to our donors about that, it can it can ripple through the mm. through the nonprofit sector. How important is measuring impact for an organization? And especially in systems change, is that, I mean, depending on the issue, is that typically more difficult to track? I mean, it is in the sense that often in systems change work, you have a big long-term goal. 
Um, so I think about criminal justice work and, and something that a number of criminal justice reform organizations are working on here in Los Angeles is abolition of the system, mm-hmm. literally abolishing jails and prisons as we know them. You know, that's not something when you're applying for a, a one year or a three year grant that you put as right. your as your outcome, they're going to measure you on at the end of it. <laughs> right. um, so I think that's that's the tricky part. And I think it's why it has been harder for systems change nonprofits to to build their revenue and grow their organizations because the direct service work is so much more clear cut, right? You can say, you know, I, I think about uh, my previous work in homelessness and some of mm-hmm. the organizations we worked with could say, we supported 25 people in moving off the streets and, and into permanent housing of their own. You know, that's a very concrete impact in someone's life or in crisis management, which I think a lot of a lot of folks gravitate towards. You can say how many meals were served, how many shoes were given, you know, whatever it is that you're looking to alleviate. And in systems change work, it's much more nebulous. There are losses that are really out of your control, right? You're, you're working to make policy change and the vote doesn't always go your way or it's much more incremental than you wish it would be. So I think that's it's important for us to keep that in mind as a community, as funders and donors to that work and as leaders of that work to know mm-hmm. we're in it for the long haul and what will be some of the interim successes that we can really celebrate so when we talk about systems change work, it's not just, you know, we we're talking about this earlier, it's not just about the big policy win, but it's about shifting the narrative, shifting the power, shifting the relationships. So a win might look like we were successful in this big commission that's making decisions, adding an individual with lived experience to their table, um, mm-hmm. or building a relationship with ex-city council members, or members of the board of supervisors, you know, building those relationships, particularly for for folks who have direct experience of that systemic oppression, shifting and sharing power in those ways, that's, you know, those are some of the interim wins that we that we can create. And it's about building the awareness that systems change isn't just the big end goal. It's all those steps, all those steps along the way that are not not just a means to an end that they are transformative in themselves. Mm. It's just like good goal setting, right? Like or OKRs or whatever you whatever you mm-hmm. follow. You have those big ones that you're trying to achieve, the systems change and such, but you've got all these other small ones that will lead up to that. Exactly. It's like what what are all the things we're doing to get there and seeing those seeing the the process as the outcome as well. Otherwise, you burn out in this work really quickly if you know, if you don't also create ways to celebrate the process and the wins, the wins along the way. Is there a piece of terrible advice that you continue to hear from other people potentially giving that to other leaders starting out in the uh, social change space? Mm, You know, I think what first comes to mind is some of what we were talking about around the self-sacrifice and that advice of you just suck it up when you're in this work and you suffer and you work, you work 14 hour days and you're underpaid. And that's just how it is. You know, that's just what the sector is. So I think we, wherever we can really need to work to counter that. I also think, I think there, 
are a lot of nonprofits in the world, a lot of nonprofits in Los Angeles. And I think, you know, sometimes someone will have a great idea and a friend will say to them, oh my gosh, you should start a nonprofit. (laughs) And then they're off and running um, without really looking at what's already out there, what's happening, what's the need. So I think there is a kind of quickness to to jump to let's let's start something new versus looking at what's there already. Yeah. Any good entrepreneur in whatever space, just do your customer discovery, do your research, do your competitive analysis, see what see what else is out there. Right. Yeah. And just knowing that we won't do this work alone. So even if you are determined to do the thing that you envision, knowing you'll need partners along the way. Mm hmm. Christine, I so appreciate you. I love you. I love all the support that you constantly give me. I love the work that you're doing. I really appreciate you taking your time to come onto the show. Oh, thank you so much. I love you. And I so enjoyed the conversation and and felt really at home talking with you. So thank you for doing what you do and and being in my life and being in our SVP community. I'm, I'm really grateful for you. Thank you. I appreciate you. Isn't Christine incredible? If you're in Los Angeles, I highly recommend getting involved with social venture partners. Even if you're not leading a nonprofit, but you want to get involved, you can lend your skills to help their cohort of nonprofits that come through each year. SVP is an amazing organization and you won't regret it. There were some really great takeaways from my chat with Christine. I loved her advice to look at the problem you're trying to solve and fall in love with that problem and not the solution. Also to be the change that you want to see. Lead by example and do your homework before getting too far down the road of development of your idea. Make sure you've done your research. Check to see who else may already be working on this issue. If you go to goodgigs.app forward slash podcast, you'll find the show notes from this episode with the links to connect with Christine. Thanks for listening. Until next time, I appreciate you showing up and being you.